We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Genesis 18. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the people for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will the judge of all the... Sorry. Earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to them. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let me pray for us before we begin. Gracious God, we thank you that none of us are in this room this morning by accident. That whether we're here every week or whether this is something we have not done in a very long time. Or whether this is our first time ever in a church. We are here because you have brought us here. Would you help us to believe that today? And would you give us ears to hear all that you have to say to us? We pray that you would come and speak into our lives today, no matter where we are on the spectrum of belief, whether we're utterly convinced of the things we've been singing and praying or utterly unconvinced, whether we once believed and are trying to figure out if we could ever believe again. God, we need your voice. We need your wisdom. 
We need good news. And so we pray that you would speak and help us to listen. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us here today, my name's Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, for the last almost two months now, we've been working our way through this series. We've been looking at the life of Abraham. We've been saying kind of two things about this series every week. Number one, why are we doing this series? Because we want you to see that the God of the Old Testament is no different from the God of the New Testament. That's not how people tend to think about the Bible. They think that the God of the New Testament is this God of love and, and, and kindness and mercy, but the God of the Old Testament is just kind of cranky, and he's always looking for somebody to be mad at. You know, it's like, it's like God is like Roy Kent in the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden Ted Lasso shows up in the New Testament. I guess not many of you have seen Ted Lasso. That was a lot funnier in my head than, than the actual moment of telling it. Uh, and I just want you to know something, that God is not like that at all. And this is actually what we see in the story of Abraham, because time and time again, Abraham does some pretty terrible things. And you know what? God is patient, and God is kind, and God is slow to anger, and he is abounding in love. So that's the first reason we're doing it. Here's the second reason we're doing this series is that Abraham's life shows us what it means to be a Christian. Some of you are here exploring Christianity, trying to figure out if you could ever believe this stuff. And maybe you're even asking, you know, what even is a Christian? Well, we learn what a Christian is through the story of Abraham. And it's very simple, actually. Abraham meets God. He has a personal encounter with God. And his life is changed. Uh, that's what a Christian is. It's someone who, who, who has a personal relationship with God and your life is changed. John Stott, who is a very well-known Christian author and pastor, he died about 10 years ago. He was 90 years old. But at his 80th birthday party, he told the story of how he became a Christian. He said that for his entire life, he'd gone to church every week and that he read the Bible every day, and that he prayed every day, but it wasn't until he was 17 years old and a minister told him to go read Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, which says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And this is what John Stott said about that verse. He said, it was exactly what I needed to know, for I had believed in Jesus all my life. I had been around Jesus all my life, but I realized that he was on the outside, on the wrong side of the door. I said my prayers every day, but through the keyhole, as it were. But that night, the 13th of February, 1938, when the others were in bed and the lights were out, I crept out of bed and I knelt, and as simply as I knew how, I opened the door. Christian is not someone who has simply adopted a new set of virtues or a new set of ethics to try and live by. A Christian is someone who has opened the door. They've had a personal encounter. And maybe if you're here this morning and you've never opened the door, that's why God has you here this morning. 
to open the door, to not just know about him, but to actually know him, to have a personal relationship with him that then changes everything in your life. And when I say everything, I mean everything. It changes the way you see God. It changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you see your money and your neighbors. If you're single, it changes the way you see your singleness. If you're married, it changes the way you see your marriage. If you have kids, it changes the way you see them. It changes the way that you see all of your relationships. It changes the way you see your work. And guess what? It changes the way you see your city, which is what this passage is all about. If you've been around our church for any length of time, I hope that you have heard us say that we aspire to be a church that does not simply exist for ourselves, but for our city. And we didn't come up with that idea. That is actually something that you see throughout the Bible. See, what does this passage have to teach us about what it means about how, about how a relationship with God changes the way you see the city. That's what we're looking at this morning. And I want to unpack that by looking at three things. We're going to look at Abraham's heart for the city. And then we're going to look at God's heart for the city. And then we're going to talk about our heart for the city. So first, Abraham's heart for the city. All right, the passage we're looking at this morning picks up right where we left off last week, actually. If you are here last week, you remember that God came and he visited Abraham and Sarah in the form of a human person. Three strangers show up to their tent. One of them is God himself in human form, and the other are, are two angels in human form. And in the opening verses of this passage, God, he, he's still there, he's still at Abraham's tent, still in the form of these, tra- these travelers, But in the opening verses of of this passage, God lets Abraham in on a little secret. He says, Abraham, I've heard that there are some pretty terrible things happening in the city of Sodom. And I'm going to go check it out and see what needs to be done. And what what ensues for the rest, it was kind of a long passage that we read this morning, but what ensues for the rest of the, the, the chapter is this one long back and forth between Abraham and God. Now, this is what the Bible calls prayer, okay? Prayer is simply talking to God. One of the primary marks that you've had a personal encounter with God, that you've come into a personal relationship with him, is prayer. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, he says to his followers, when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray. Because you can't have a relationship with someone that you never talk to. The same is true with God as it is in human relationships. But I want you to notice the content of Abraham's prayer. So look at verse 23. Abraham says, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? And God says, If there's 50, I'll spare it. And Abraham says, how about 45? And God says, if there's 45, I'll spare it. And Abraham says, how about 40? And God says, okay. 
Abraham says, how about 30? How about 20? How about 10? And God says, okay, 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 I'll spare it. Now, this is a, this is a strange conversation, okay? And we're going to unpack it in just a little bit. But the first thing that I want you to see is that what is Abraham doing here? He's praying. He's talking to God. And he's not just praying for himself. He is praying for the city. Here's something really interesting about this prayer. This is the first recorded prayer in the Bible. And it's all about the city. And the question is, why is Abraham praying for the city? Well, if you know the story, you might remember that that Abraham actually has family in the city. His nephew Lot and all of his family is in Sodom. And so you say, well, okay, maybe Abraham is, is, is praying for the city because what he really cares about is his family. But if that's all he cared about, then that's what, it, what he would have asked for. Instead, what does he do? He prays for the whole city. You know, prayer is like a window into your heart. The things that you pray most about are always an indicator of the things that you most care about. Just look at your own prayer life. The things that we pray about always tell us what we care about. Abraham is praying for the city because he cares about the city. He has a heart for the city. He loves the city. And so he's asking God to spare it. Now that's Abraham's heart for the city. So how about God's heart for the city? And you might be saying, God's heart for the city. Brent, do you know the rest of the story? I I do, and just in case you don't know the rest of the story, God destroys the city in Genesis chapter 19. We talked earlier about the perception that people have of the God of the Old Testament as a God who is full of anger and wrath. And there may not be another story in the Old Testament that has fueled that perception more than this one. And let me just be even more specific this morning. People have used this story to promote the belief that God hates gay people. See, because what happens in this story when the two angels who are in the form of two human men go to Sodom, the men of Sodom want to sleep with them. And then God destroys a city. And so people say, see, God hates gay people. And so some of you are thinking, okay, pastor, you tell me how in the world you extract anything out of this passage that says that God loves cities and people who live in them. You know, or maybe you're thinking, this is the central problem that I have with Christianity. How could a God who brings that kind of judgment be a God of love? Now, these are important questions. Aren't these important questions? Friends, if, if, if you are a Christian and, and you, don't, you don't ask questions like this, people will not listen to you. They will think that you are not engaged with the questions that everybody else in this world is asking. So we we need to ask these questions, and we need answers to these questions, don't we? This passage gives us one. In verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said, 
The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. Now, Robert Alter, who I've been referring to almost every week in this series, he's a, he's a Hebrew scholar. Uh, he teaches at UC Berkeley. He's written a commentary on Genesis. And he says that this word outcry refers to the cries of the oppressed. He says that it's a word that references their shrieks of torment. It's actually the same word used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 13, when God says to Cain, who murdered his brother Abel, he says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You see, what are these cries of oppression that God hears coming out of Sodom? Here's here's something really interesting. Sodom is actually mentioned several times throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Let Let me give you a couple places where it's mentioned. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. God says, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of your God, you people of Gomorrah. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Jeremiah chapter 23, God says, The prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. They are all like Sodom to me. God hates something in Genesis 18, but it is not gay people. It is injustice. It is oppression. It is arrogance and the abuse of power. It is indifference to the poor and the marginalized. God hates these things. And he loves the city so much that he sees the evil in it. And he hears the cries of the oppressed who are in it. And he says, I am going there to judge that place, not despite my love, but because of my love. See, people say, I can believe in a God of love, but what I cannot get on board with is a God of judgment. Let me ask you a question. Does God love Oakland if he is never going to do something about the brokenness and evil in our city? Does that really give you a loving God? If you say yes, It is only because you have not experienced real injustice and oppression. Friends, to believe in a God of love but not a God of judgment, that is a luxury belief that only people who are privileged and protected can hold to. Because anyone, anyone who has really suffered these things knows that you cannot have a God of love without a God who is going to do something about all of the injustice and oppression in the end. Howard Thurman, 
who was a predecessor to Dr. King. He's an African-American scholar. He was a minister. And in 1947, he gave a lecture at Harvard during the pre-civil rights era. And this is what he said in that lecture. He said, can you imagine a slave saying, I and all my children and grandchildren are consigned to live lives of endless brutality and grinding poverty. Can you imagine saying that there is no judgment day in which any wrongdoing will ever be put to right? You cannot have a God of love without a God of judgment. And you cannot have a God who loves the city without a God who says, I hear the cries of the poor and the weak and the needy and the marginalized and the abused and the brokenhearted, and I am determined to do something about it. Uh, in his book, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson tells the story of Anthony Ray Hinton. And Stevenson is an African American, he's an attorney, he's a Christian. And he has devoted his life to fighting for people of color who have been wrongly imprisoned. And Hinton is one of those people, actually. He was, he was convicted of a murder in Alabama in 1985. It was a murder that he didn't commit. He was convicted on, uh, based on faulty ballistics report. And the prosecutor, who was white in the case, said that he could tell Anthony Ray Hinton was guilty just by looking at him. And they made a movie out of this book. And if you haven't seen it, I would really encourage you to watch it. But there's a scene at the end. Uh, it's actually in the closing minutes of the film. It's actually live recorded historical footage of when Anthony Ray Hinton comes walking out of prison after 30 years of being on death row, wrongly convicted. And he comes walking out, and his sister comes running up to him. And she wraps her arms around him, and she is weeping with joy. And you know what she says? She says, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Uh, there's a woman named Sarah McLaughlin. Uh, not Sarah she's a singer. Rebecca McLaughlin, who... Uh, yeah. A lot of words this morning, guys. Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, she wrote a book called A Secular Creed, and she deals with a lot of kind of big questions that people are asking about Christianity right now, but she, she talks about the moment that she watched this movie and saw this scene and how it changed her life, and this is what she said. She said, as we hear the tear-stained words of Anthony Ray Hinton's sister, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Lord, we must ask, why would a black woman in a state with one of the worst records on racial justice and one of the highest levels of Christian identification thank Jesus for her innocent brother's release? Answer, she says, because she knows that Jesus is on the side of the poor, the oppressed, and the falsely accused. God is on the side of the poor. He loves the poor. He loves the marginalized. 
and he loves the city. God loves the city. This is why in Jonah chapter 4, God looks at Nineveh, this broken, messed up city, and he says, should I not be concerned about the city? It's why in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus walks into the city of Jerusalem, the last week of his life, it says that he looked at the city and he wept over it. God's heart breaks for the city. God's heart is determined to heal the city. Friends, that is what God's judgment is always about. You do not need to be afraid of God's judgment. God's judgment, it is good news because his judgment is settled, is his settled opposition to all that is wrong and his settled commitment to make all things right. So how about our hearts? Not just Abraham's heart for the city, not just God's heart for the city. How about our hearts for the city? See, God loves the city. You know what that means if you're a Christian? You know what that means if you were a follower of Jesus? It means that God calls you to love the city too. And so what does that look like? It looks like three things. You say, three things? That sounds like a whole other sermon. These are going to be really quick. All right, here we go. First, you love the city by praying big prayers. See, so often our prayers, they're dominated by our own needs. You say, well, doesn't God want me to pray about those things? Of course God wants you to pray about those things. He just doesn't want you to pray only about those things. He doesn't just want your prayers to be personal. He wants them to be for the city and about the city. That's actually one of the ways you know you've had this personal encounter is that your prayers aren't just personal. They become deeply involved with what is happening in the world. Here's a question for you. I asked myself this question this week and it was very convicting for me. And maybe it's convicting for you. If God answered all the prayers you prayed this past week for the city, what would be different? Would anything be different? Who would have benefited? Would people who don't look like you, who don't have your same level of education, who don't live where you live, would would any of these people have benefited from the prayers that you prayed this last week? You see, prayer is one of the first ways to love the city. And by the way, it is also one of the ways to grow in your love for the city. See, if you struggle to love the city, it's probably because you don't pray very much for it. Why do you think Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that we're to pray for our enemies. It's not just for them. It's actually for us. See, how does that work? Well, here's how it works. The more you pray for your enemies, the more you develop a heart to love your enemies. 
That's part of the power of prayer. Prayer is one of the main ways that God molds and shapes our heart to love not just our enemies, but to love our city. So if you struggle to love the city, try praying for it every day this week. Here's a second way to love the city. You love the city by descending into humility. Look what Abraham prays in verse 27. He says, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. He calls himself dust and ashes. This is incredible humility. He's got a deep sense of his own unworthiness, his own brokenness, his own humanity. There is no pretense here. There's no self-righteousness. Abraham is not coming to God saying, you know, God, hear my prayers because I'm so much better than all those people in Sodom. Abraham does not see himself superior to anyone. And you see, you will never be able to love the city as long as you look down on people. As long as you think those people. And there'll always be someone you can do that with in this city. And we're all doing it, you know? If you're progressive, you say those conservative people. If you're conservative, you say those progressive people. If you're rich, you say those poor people. If you're, if you're poor, you say those rich people. If you live in the flats, you say those people who live in the hills. If you live in the hills, you say those people who live in the flats. We probably even did it this morning, coming in with our mask. Those people, still with their mask on. You don't even have to. Those people, you know, taking their mask off. You'll never love the city as long as you look down on other people. You've got to be a person of humility. You've got to have a sense of your own need, your own, broken, your own brokenness, your own sense of dust and ashes so that you don't look down on anyone. Here's the last thing. You love the city by remembering your calling. Look what God says in verse 19. He says, For I have chosen Abraham so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did he call him? He called him so that he would do what is right and just. Now, when we hear those words, when we hear the word righteousness, we think that it's all about being a moral person. It's all about moral obedience. It's all about being a good person. But you know what? The, word, the words that are used here for righteousness and justice are way more than that. They're the Hebrew words tzedakah and mishpat. And they show up all over the Bible together. Whenever they appear together, they are always talking about something that is much bigger than just your personal piety or your personal holiness or your personal obedience. They are about having a passion for the well-being of others, namely four groups of people. This is what uh, theologian Nicholas Walterstorff calls the quartet of the vulnerable. Four groups of people who are constantly being mentioned when the words of mishpat and tzedekah, righteousness and justice, are showing up throughout the Old Testament. You know who they are? They're the widow. They're the orphan. They're the immigrant. And they're the poor. And so in Job chapter 29, 
Job is talking about how he has sought to live a life of righteousness and justice. And this is what he says. He uses these words, mishpat and sedekah, and he says, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I took up the case of the stranger. Let me give you another example. In the book of Amos, God is condemning Israel for failing to care for the poor and the needy, for failing to defend the weak and the vulnerable. And in Amos chapter 5, verse 24, it says, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We're going to sing those words later on in the service. God loves these things. He loves righteousness and justice. That's literally what Psalm 33 says. It says the Lord loves Sedekah and Mishpat. He loves righteousness and justice. God loves these things. God called Abraham to do these things. And guess what? He calls me and you to do them as well. They are your calling. They're your calling. Why are you here? Why has God put you here? Why has God brought you into relationship with him. It's not just for you. It is for others. It is for the weak, and it is for the poor, and it is for the marginalized and the oppressed and the vulnerable. God is calling you to be concerned about the well-being of others in this city. To take your time and your money and your talents and to say, how can I use these things to bless others? So so here's the question. How are you doing? (laughs) How are you doing loving the city? I'm going to assume that there's a couple of us in this room that are feeling inspired to go love the city, but that most of us are feeling a little guilty about how we haven't loved the city. See, how do we become people who love the city like God loves the city, who pray big prayers, who look down on no one, who live a life of justice and of mercy? What is going to get us there? Well, over and over again in this passage, Abraham asked God, Will you spare the city? God, if there are 50 righteous people in the city, will you spare it? If there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20. And you know what God says over and over and over again? He says, yes. And the most striking thing about this passage is that Abraham stops asking at 10. I mean, you're kind of just waiting for him to go all the way down to one. God, if there's just one, if there's just one righteous person, will you spare the city? But he doesn't ask. You know why he doesn't ask? Because he knows that there is not one. He knows that he's not even one. Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. Not even one. See, and this is the great 
tension and dilemma of the passage is that if there is no God of justice, friends, what hope is there for the city and for the world, for the cries of the oppressed? But if there is a God of justice, what hope is there for Abraham? And what hope is there for me? And what hope is there for you? I mean, if you look at your heart, what you begin to realize is that the same things in Sodom are deep inside every single one of us. What hope is there? You know what the Christian gospel says? It says that there is infinite hope because God is saying to Abraham over and over in this passage, if there's just one, all it takes, all it takes is the righteousness of one to save the many. You see, where's the one? He's right here at this table. And he is ready to welcome you and to greet you and to embrace you. Not because you have been righteous, but because he's been righteous. Before you can ever begin to reflect God's heart for the city, you have to experience God's heart for you. And that is a heart that is so big and so full of mercy and love that he came into this world not to bring judgment but to bear it. He came not to destroy us, but on the cross to destroy himself. The Christian gospel says that Jesus took the judgment of God so that we could have the love of God, friends, and to the degree that you know and experience that love, you will be sent out to love this city in deeply radical ways to love it like God loves it. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that there is one. That he is your son. And we come to this table this morning not looking to ourselves, but looking to him and giving thanks and praise to you for all that you have done in him and through him and for us. So give us faith this morning as we come, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.